I'm Carrie Miller, and this is a special episode of Big Books and Bold Ideas, the show where readers meet writers. Today, writers who have drawn indelible portraits of American history. You'll hear Ron Chernow, the author of Hamilton, and David Folliday, who published a book this year about a little-known part of Civil War history. But we're beginning with Stacey Schiff. In 2015, her History of the Salem Witch Trials came out and quickly became a bestseller. Here she is on the stage of the Fitz talking about the staying power of witches. In literature, in opera, all the really good roles seem to go to witches. I mean, what does that tell us? What does that tell us? You know, I think, and in part, this is how I came, you know, in that strange, convoluted, perverse way that one gets from Cleopatra to 17th century America, which is perfectly obvious to me, um, when you talk about women and you talk about power, somehow the word witchcraft automatically seems to arise between the two. And in fact, even today, if you look at the press, whenever you have a woman um, who is said to be very accomplished or spellbinding, or she's never charismatic, she's spellbinding. I mean, right. the, the, the sorceress stuff seems to come up a lot. Right. These women that were in 1692 in Salem that were accused or feeling like they were experiencing witchcraft were taking on a kind of power and self-authority right? That must have been very threatening to the community. Many of the people who are accused um, are clearly, you know, it's hard to say because there are male, there are male, um, there are male witches, there are all kinds of people accused, but many of the women who are accused are clearly the sharp-tongued, the sharp-elbowed, the defiant, the cantankerous, the woman who didn't quite fit in or who perhaps was a little less conciliatory than she might have been. The woman who asked the carpenter to actually fix that joint three times over as opposed to just (laughs) paying the bill. Um, She got accused of witchcraft. That quote that I read in the introduction about once you, the more you resisted an accusation of witchcraft, the deeper you dug yourself in. There was really no way out for a while. The peculiarity of the witchcraft accusations in 1692 is that you're being accused um, of deeds that happen in someone else's imagination, basically. Um, You're being accused by a core group of girls who seem to have some kind of spectral sight. And so you could be standing in a courtroom um, and think that you're simply standing before the justices, but the girls will point at you and claim that you are conversing with an invisible devil whom they alone can see. And for various reasons, which we can talk about, the justices will privilege their testimony over yours. So the justices will somehow seem also able to see or believe that they see um, this spectral figure whispering in your ear. So if you're up against something that no one else has to prove, you have no alibi. Um, And essentially what happens under those circumstances, yes, is that your case is hopeless. As you're explaining that, I'm thinking, if you look into more contemporary history and you think about witch hunts, it's not all that dissimilar. If you were believed to be a communist, you had to prove a negative at one point in our country. I mean, there's other eras like this. I think in any situation where you are um, said to be something that you are not, and are not given the means to deny that. Um, Yes, it involves some sort of witchcraft. The difference I would point out is that um, there were communists. There presumably were no witches. Um, (laughs) Okay. So, um, Presumably, you said. Some of us believe. um, I tend to believe there were no witches. But in other words, in some cases, these are overstated threats. In some cases, these are delusional threats. Um, And this is a case of um, a religious idea taken one step too far in a situation where for different reasons and because of different people's agendas, um, the prosecution is ruthless and um, absolutely across the board um, hell-bent on doing what it's doing. Sexuality um, simmers through a lot of this, and I think at one point you say, the battle for a thrashing, moaning young woman's soul certainly titillated some at her bedside. How how present was this simmering sexuality that nobody was really going to be open about? 
Um, here you have me out on a, on a speculative ledge. Um, these are teenaged accusers. These are all girls um, between the ages of 12 and 20, accusing their elders, accusing men in the community. Um, nothing on paper connects any of those girls with any kind of sexual abuse. Many of them are living, many of them are orphans. Uh, many of them are living in homes without their biological fathers. Um, on the court records in the prior years, there's a tremendous history of sexual assault. Um, any number of women battle, you know, the lascivious swine herd or the um, other servant in the house. Servants are abused by their masters regularly. Um, so there's a lot of um, violence against women in this society. If you look at the girl's testimony carefully, a lot of um, very sexualized vocabulary gets used. The girls right. are poked, they're prodded, their pitchforks are thrown on them, people have wrestled them onto their laps. There's a lot that's sexual. I mean, there's one point where a girl and the girls in the courtroom tended to convulse and to fall into trances and to writhe or to um, have their limbs go rigid. And there's one spectacular moment of a um, teenaged girl in the courtroom with her legs sort of soldered together, and you have these adult men trying to separate her knees. I, I mean, a lot of this is slightly sexual. Um, so do I see an undercurrent there? Yes. Do we have any definitive proof that any of these girls was acting out of any kind of you know, abuse? Not really. Um, there's an interesting piece in the testimony where um, the girls are clearly accusing a man, in this case a minister of witchcraft, and he's said to be the wizard who's at the heart of this whole conspiracy, who had abused his wives. Mm. And it's almost, and everyone in the community knew um, that he had been a combative figure and a very difficult husband, a very controlling husband. And this is clearly some kind of vengeance being worked on him by women for the women whom he had abused. So there are all kinds of levels of, of sexuality here. What, what did you make of the fact that a number of these girls uh, that were accused witches were living without fathers? Did you draw any conclusion from that? There's a, I think there's a lot to it. Um, Partly in the sense that you are more, you are just vulnerable in a society like this one, um, where a father figure would have meant so much. There's a stunning case of a um, of a girl who's bewitched the following year, bewitched who is suffering the the symptoms of witchcraft in 1693, and she is surrounded in her bedroom by well wishers, which was normal um, under the circumstances. And at one point, she dismisses all the women, but she asks the men to stay. Um, and, and there seemed to be a lot of that. There's another girl who will um, converse with an invisible devil, and she's saying to the devil, um, stop telling me that I'm fatherless. I know that I'm fatherless. So there seems to be a certain obsession with having lost that male protector in some way. I, I get the impression from reading some of the testimony that includes descriptions of the devil that it was a very traditional almost medieval kind of perception of what the devil was. Is that, is that how you'd put it? Yes, I would say that um, there is no... It's not the Miltonian devil. There are no sort of winged creatures here. Um, the devil seems to be a relatively um, traditional figure. He can transform himself into all kinds of animals. Um, no one's quite sure what language he speaks um, there's a lot of confusion as to what, whether he's a dark man or whether he's a dark cat. You know, he tra he's, he's a transformative figure in many ways. He clearly um, is related in some way. An earlier witchcraft epidemic in Sweden colors what will happen in New England. And the New England devil in 1692 bears a striking similarity to the Swedish devil of several decades earlier. So there's a little, imp there's a little imported devilology or whatever you want to call it there. <laughs> Um, and, and there's a certain um, consistency to his agenda in that he's offering his diabolical packs. Everyone's very clear that he offers a, a little book. It's usually red. And one signs in, in blood or in red or with the bark of a tree. But he proffers all kinds of fine things. Um, and it's interesting that those are sort of customized bribes. I mean, he knows exactly what you want, of course. So um, to a middle-aged woman, he might offer ease and rest. And to a child, he might offer fine clothes or a trip to the Golden City. He pretty much knows what you're, what you're lusting for. 
I want to talk about the perception of what a witch was, because this was really interesting. And you write about the influence that an English academic had over the, over the idea of what a witch was in the 17th century. They would have, it's clear that they would have believed that witchcraft was very tangible, that you could, what, see it and feel it? And that was really important for me to get across early on in the book. Um, yes, very palpable, but not a witch is not a figure of superstition um, at this point. A witch is a religious construct, and she is essentially um, he, he or she is someone who is essentially signed a pact with the devil, because of which she can do unnatural and malicious things. And she has a whole army of little familiars or imps which help her to accomplish her ends. But she's defined. There's an entire scientific literature of witchcraft. Um, to the point where all kinds of things about her are codified. Um, The marks that she bears on her body are codified. Um, Everyone knew that a a witch couldn't recite the Lord's Prayer properly. Um, And oddly enough, when any number of suspects appear in the courtroom and are asked to recite the Lord's Prayer, they can't do it, which drives home the kind of pressure these people were under in front of the authorities. Um, A witch could not cry except for three tears out of her left eye. I mean, it's really specific material. Um, And an English witch was different from a continental witch, and these are very much English witches who did not fly until 1692 when there's a lot of flying in Massachusetts, um, which is another import from the Swedish epidemic. Um, But yes, there's an entire science and literature of this. Um, Any witch is not the pointy-headed crone we know today, but a a diabolical accomplice. You talk about the contradictory dimensions of what a witch could could do and couldn't do. Um, You say, they knew secrets for bleaching cloth, smelled figs in someone else's pocket, survived falls downstairs. They could be muttering contentious malcontents, or they could be inexplicably strong and unaccountably smart. You could not win if you were. Uh, some of us would be toast, yeah. <laughs> I know. Um, you know, there's a, there's a wonderful line said by her minister of, of the first woman to have hanged in Massachusetts that she had had more wit than her neighbors. Yes. Um, a hanging offense, on, in many circumstances, in fact. Um, those who were outliers, those who were oddities, even the minister whom I just mentioned, George Burroughs, he, he was a very small man. Um, he's called puny by one of the great Massachusetts ministers, but he has um, some kind of sinewy strength, and it doesn't seem as if it correlates to his size. And that seems, while that had seemed very impressive during Indian raids <laughs> in 1692, when you're looking for a diabolical mastermind, it seemed suspect. So anybody who's on the margins in any way, um, among other people, is definitely suspect. Historian Stacy Schiff there with devilology and witches and folklore and fables in American history. If you love history, this is the hour for you. Kelly Gordon, who produces big books and bold ideas and lots of other things at the uh, at NPR, is with me. I, Kel, would I make a pact with the devil to get this membership drive done? I might. <laughs> that is it a very dangerous question, that. Carrie Miller. <laughs> it is. I mean, there I are eight hours left. I don't know that we're quite there yet. Just over $206,000 <laughs> to raise. But people, you could help Carrie so she doesn't have to make a pact with the devil. But you can be wise. You can be somebody who's clever. Wasn't that what Stacy was saying? Sometimes yeah. people said they were just clever and therefore they're witches. And so you can come on the NPR news team and be a clever person and help us keep this sort of programming on the radio. 800-227-2811 to avert the pact with the devil that I'm going to make to get this drive done. Online, nprnews.org. Kelly and I work day and night to bring you the most interesting, the most innovative, the most intriguing interviews with writers. And here's the deal. I mean, this is, yes, it's about the craft of writing and it's about the ideas at the center of the creative expression of the writer. But these conversations are also about life. I mean, Kelly, Mm -hmm. you know that 
often these discussions veer off into what it means to be in a long marriage, what it means to be raising children. I mean, these are conversations that run the spectrum of the human condition. If you love books, if you love in-depth conversation, if you just love the idea that there is a book at the center of a conversation about a big idea, this is the hour for you. And we'd love it if you'd step up and help us make this goal. We are at finish line Friday here. We can see the finish line. We're going to need your help. 800-227-2811. Online at mprnews.org. Kelly, I think you gave us the number. What do we need to, to finish it up? We need two hundred and six thousand dollars that's where we are that's how much we still need to raise it is a lot yeah it's a little bit of a hole but i also have seen npr listeners come through like this before you know where the momentum starts to pick up and it starts to roll and it gets really exciting by the time tom cran gets on this evening we can do it we have eight hours left and you know carrie one of the things that i always think about npr news listeners and why i think big books and bold ideas really resonates is that people who listen to npr news are curious Mm-hmm. Right. They, they right. like to learn. They want right. to hear about how these books, how the news stories, how the issues that we're facing today in our country connect to their lives. They want to be exposed to a new idea and not just in a way that is in so many other places in media. You can hear new mm-hmm. ideas, but it's bombastic. Mm-hmm. It's it's, yeah. you know, it's like an assault to your senses here. We are talking about ideas in a thoughtful, insightful, curious way. And that's what we bring you. That's the NPR News difference. So if you would like to join our team and help us make this big, hairy, audacious goal, you can call us 1-800-227-2811 or, of course, online at nprnews.org. Yeah, what I can hear Kelly alluding to here is there are a lot of places to find news and headlines and discussion and context and analysis but the but the, the the real calling card here of what NPR news does and what NPR news does is to bring you a lot of different voices a lot of different perspective and then that deeper background and those well sourced sources to come in to tell you here's why it matters Mm -hmm. here's not just an opinion piece and you are left to try to figure it out here's all the information you need to make a you know a a well-informed decision and come to the ideas that you're going to come to yourself. Big Books and Bold Ideas is all about that, too. But we put a book at the center of it. We put writer's creative expression at the center of it. That's what you're supporting when you commit to Minnesota Public Radio. And we'd love it if you do it this hour. We've got that big audacious goal, as Kelly says, and you can help us meet it. And if you do it this hour, we know that's a validation for for your interest in books and reading. 800 227 2811. If you are listening online right now, somewhere got your phone in your hand, this is quick. NPRnews.org. Just jump on over and commit and make a gift and then walk around the rest of the day with that little halo knowing that you helped us make the goal, right? That's right. And in fact, Carrie, I just came into the station this morning and I found a letter in my mailbox from a listener, David, in South Dakota, and he sent a check to you, to wow. our team at Book Books, and said, I would like to become <laughs> oh a new member. So I'm wow. sending you a check right now to become in at that $5 a month. Join Jeez. David. You can do this. David. You can support this kind of programming. Thank you, David. 800-227-2811 or nprnews.org. We are going back to our portraits of American history, different historians with different takes on different times in American history. I hope you're finding these conversations enlightening and enriching. And if you are, keep the mice clicking, keep the calls coming in, and thanks. My name is Bob. I'm from Richfield. I've been an NPR listener ever since I got out of college. That was in the 70s. And uh, I really got hooked into the long-form reporting of NPR. Uh, It's always the first button I push when I get in the car. If you're a listener who has not yet joined, take a look at what you've gained from listening to NPR over the years. And just what would you do without it in your life? Join me and become a member at nprnews.org or call 800-227-2811. Now back to our Writers in American History episode of my Friday book show. Historian David Folliday wrote his first book about a former slave who became the leader of the African Brigade during the Civil War. Richard Etheridge would go on to form the first all-black crew for the Coast Guard. But this is such a rich part of American history that Folliday went on to write a novel about Etheridge, 
Here he is from our 2022 interview, talking about the post-Civil War context of Etheridge's story. You know, the history of American slavery is the history of citizenship on some level. It's about race, certainly, and it's about notions of identity. And given that blacks were viewed as lesser, they were viewed as not deserving citizenship, as not worth it. Would black men fight, you know, if they were armed? From the Southern point of view, this is a huge problem because armed slaves, from their vantage point, it's slave rebellion. From the Northern vantage point, though, there was a lot of resistance on the basic question of, of, of equality. You know, again, are blacks equal to, to, to whites? Would black men stand in line and, and be brave and have honor and do the things that soldiers are supposed to do? But as the fighting got going, uh, a few Northern commanders immediately recognized that black soldiers on the one hand, just this need for troops, but also the black men, uh, the, the slaves who were there were buttressing the Southern army despite themselves. It wasn't like they were joining the Southern army, but they were slaves and they were a source of, of labor for Confederate officers and whatever. So what was recognized, what was understood was that if you could take those black men in particular, if you could take those black men and get their service for the Union Army, not necessarily as soldiers, but get their service for the Union Army, on the one hand, you're adding to your own ranks, but you're simultaneously subtracting from the ranks of the enemy. Then this abolitionist element came in and said, we can also arm these men. And if we arm these men, that might not just have a, a, uh, be a force multiplier, but it might also strike at the morale of the South. That's exactly what I wanted to follow up on. It is highly controversial. I mean, it makes sense, right? Because the Union needs troops in their, in their battles against the Confederate Army. But it is highly controversial when the U.S. Army gives weapons to black recruits. Do I, do I understand this right, that this doesn't happen immediately, but, but necessity ends up requiring that they will arm these slaves turned soldiers to fight. Yeah, right. I mean, it, it doesn't have, I mean, freedom doesn't happen immediately. Emancipation doesn't happen immediately. I mean, everything is contested in this moment. Abraham Lincoln is going back and forth about whether he should emancipate the slaves. So the notion of, in fact, uh, enlisting them and arming them is much more controversial. But in the South, one of the first northern invasions is right there along that part of the eastern seaboard into sort of Tidewater, Virginia and in, in coastal North Carolina. And so their northern uh, mil military fortifications are established and slaves immediately begin pouring in. So the northern army is beginning to use this slave service, even as it's controversial. Some of the soldiers on the ground understand immediately the impact. So despite the controversy, they're thinking, this is for the better benefit. And then somebody like Edward Augustus Wilde, who is the commanding general in, in the novel and who is an actual figure, he was an abolitionist through and through. So for him, it's bigger than that. General Wilde, uh, I fictionalize him here, but the real General Wilde was one of the men who helped organize the, the unit that is featured in the movie Glory, right? He mm -hmm. understands mm -hmm. immediately the power of a black soldier in the fight for freedom, because for him, it's a fight for freedom. It's a fight about slavery, even if the larger conversation is about disunion and loyalty, et cetera, et cetera. We should say that there is a question, obviously, of equality the whole way through, and you've alluded to this, even in including pay. I mean, the I think the soldiers in your novel and some of the other history that I've read about this learn that they are not being paid equally. And Lincoln doesn't and this is in some of the reading that I've done in Frederick Douglass as well, Lincoln does not immediately leap to say, well, that's unfair and we're going to rectify that. He kind of lets the situation go on. Just one of the of a number of inequities uh, for these soldiers of color that are serving? Absolutely. I mean, there's the issue of pay. There's the issue of how they're regarded. Even as they're raising these these black troops, Slaves who fled across and were sort of taken into Union lines were called contrabands of war. So they were referred mm -hmm. to as contrabands. They're contrabands before they're uh, enlisted or recruited, uh, is the word that they would use, into the army. They're still doing so much uh, labor. You know, they're not being armed. Also in part because, as you mentioned, the leadership is white. There are very, very few black officers. And the few black officers that are in the Union army 
are chaplains and things like that. So the leadership is white. And you have to have a leadership that is going to, A, want to join to lead black men, uh, be willing to do that, and then do it well. Because so much, I mean, 90% of all African Americans at that time are in the South. So most of these men from the North who are who have joined the Union Army and are fighting in this war um, have had no encounter with black people before, have had a little encounter with black people. What they think they understand of black people is probably what they learned watching minstrel shows or reading you know, books, many of the depictions of which are, even in the best case scenario, sort of tinged with a sort of racism that sort of reinforces uh, a notion that, that African Americans are inherently inferior, or if not inherently that they're inferior because they haven't reached the same level of civilization as white Americans. So raising black regiments poses all these problems. You're listening to a conversation with David Wright Faladay about his new novel, Black Cloud Rising. And, and now you can hear that we've set the historical setting and David has taken accurate history from this part of the Civil War and this part of the United States and novelized the story of this African brigade. They're operating in eastern North Carolina. They are commanded by a white commander who's this larger-than-life figure, and we'll talk about him as well. But the story, the novel, focuses on the experience of Sergeant Richard Etheridge, a true figure also novelized in David's in David's fiction, and we'll talk about him as well. I'm Carrie Miller. This is Big Books and Bold Ideas. David, um, you wrote a nonfiction book about the central character in Black Cloud Rising, this Sergeant Richard Etheridge. Tell us who he was, and then I'm then I'm really interested to know about the historical documentation that influenced you know, that led to the nonfiction book, then, but then also influenced um, the portrayal in the novel. Who was he? Etheridge was this figure who, for a long time, was lost to history. We're beginning to recover the history of the station that he commanded in the early Coast Guard, but also him. The Coast Guard uh, christened a cutter after him. But up until fairly recently, he had sort of been lost to history. A hundred years ago, during the age of sail, most goods and people are traveling by waterways in vessels that are powered by, by the wind, you know, and by tides and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so they're particularly vulnerable. They're wooden vessels overwhelmingly. So after the Civil War uh, was an institution called the Life Saving Service, the forerunner of the, of the modern Coast Guard. So the Coast Guard was formed from two different branches, the U.S. Life Saving Service that I'm about to describe, and then the Revenue Cutter Service that resembles a little bit more what we think of the Coast Guard today. During the age of sail, the Life Saving Service branch of it, its primary mission was safeguarding shipping. So there were 200, roughly, stations along America's uh, coasts, mostly along the Atlantic seaboard and along the Great Lakes. There were a few on the West Coast, too. Stations would be six miles apart, five or six miles apart, and they would be staffed by a crew of seven, a keeper, what was called a keeper, and then six surfmen. What they would do is, during the day, they had an observation deck atop the, the station, and they would look out to sea to make sure that all was well. And then during night, they maintain a constant patrol, patrolling between the stations. You would walk three miles, encounter a surfman from the other station, exchange a a metal chit to prove that you had done your beat, and then return to the station. All the while, you're looking out to sea, you know, to make sure that everything's going okay. Necessarily, a lot of times, things are not going okay. In the outer banks, in the early days, in the early years of the the life-saving service, so we're talking 1875, 1876, some of the stations had black surfmen. Right. There were black men who had been slaves out there, black men who had grown up out there, who were super capable in the water. Also, many of uh, were military veterans like Richard Etheridge. And because it was tied to politics, some of the first keepers who had sided with the North hired black men. They were always in the lowest ranking positions. So the surfmen were ranked one to six, sort of number one being the second in command and number six, numbers five and six being the lowest men on the duty roster. The few black surfmen who were employed were in those ranks. This is before Richard Etheridge takes charge. He's one of those men. So it's 1876. Uh, He's hired at Oregon Inlet Station, which is to the north of Pea Island, again, which is in the Outer Banks. At this same time, because it is a political entity and because it's a new service, it's sort of 
the entire life-saving service is rife with political corruption, and there, there are a series of maritime disasters that happen that are just dramatic. And, you know, when you have that sort of shipwreck in 1876, 78, 80, it's like when a plane crashes today. You get this national media attention, there's a huge loss of life, and a, a series of these happened off the Outer Banks. Inspectors came from the north to sort of root out the trouble. They determined that a lot of it had to do with nepotism. So men who were not qualified were being hired. What they also realized was that the few black surfmen who were out there were often amongst the better surfmen, and they were increasingly being hired less and less. So you have this problem of a lack of qualified lifesavers, and then you have these very qualified black lifesavers who were about to be out of a job, and Richard Etheridge was one of them. When the northern inspectors came down to sort of tour all these stations and write this report and try to reform the North Carolina district, they noted that Richard Etheridge was regarded by both black and white as amongst the best watermen on the coast, even as he was the number six surfman in his station. So this wreck happened off the Piallon station, which was the station next to where Richard Etheridge served. The keeper that night was out. He'd actually quit the station. He was out hunting at night. And so the surfmen who were left behind didn't respond quickly or appropriately. The ship was lost at sea. There was a loss of life. The inspectors from the north seized the opportunity. They didn't install a black crew. What they did is they promoted Etheridge from number six to the keeper at P. Island. Hmm. Now, suddenly, the white surfmen at P. Island aren't going to stay there. They're not going to serve under a black man. And the, ins the inspectors anticipated this. So the white surfmen quit the crew, and that allows them then to take the remaining black surfmen in the Outer Banks and collect them all together. So in this weird kind of irony, segregation becomes the thing that provides the opportunity. By segregating those black men with R Richard Etheridge in charge, then they create this all-black station. And it's the only one in the history of the life-saving service. The life-saving service continues as it becomes a Coast Guard until 1947, and Pea Island remains a black station the length of that time. David Wright Falliday there with a part of American history that I would guess you're not familiar with unless you heard the interview and adding some really enriched details about the life of some of these characters that he has researched and written about. It is an hour of American uh, portraits, portraits in American history. And Kelly Gordon and I, who work on the show together, are here to remind you that if you love American history and you're just a bookie all the way around, this is the hour for you uh, in our quest to get over the finish line on this last day of the member drive. So bring that all together. If you're a book lover, you love history, and you want to help us get over the finish line on the membership drive, we ask that you make a contribution now. 800-227-2811, online at mpr.org. Kelly, what can we say here? We can see the finish line on the horizon there. What do we have to do to get to it? Well, one thing that we can do is we have a match right now that just started just a few minutes ago at 1130. It's $5,000 in donations. We will be matched by the NPR Board of Trustees. So as if you've been listening this morning, this week, you know that we're a little behind on our goal for the fall member drive. So this match is one way that we can get caught up. So the next $5,000 in donations will be matched. Of course, it's going to go fast. It's We're talking about it here. We're talking about it on The Current. You can take action right now. That's one way, right, to get us to that horizon. Seven hours left in our big, hairy, audacious goal. Just call us at 1-800-227-2811, or you can go online, nprnews.org. It's $5,000 on the line by the NPR Board of Trustees. Again, it's just a little turbocharge mm -hmm. to help us get to the end of the drive, of the member drive. We all want that, right? We want to go back to regular programming. We want to listen to these interviews with writers without interruptions here. And our way, our method of getting there is to make sure we meet the goal for the member drive. What can you do for that? Well, savor these conversations with American historians, but also 
kind of validate the fact that we spend an hour bringing you these in-depth discussions, these in-depth interviews. And the way you can do that during the member drive is just to say, hey, you know what? $15 a month works for me. I'm going to help you meet the goal. I'm going to help you get that $5,000 from the NPR Board of Trustees. And I'm going to know that I've done something to improve and enrich the programming that I get from Minnesota Public Radio. Okay, have I talked you into it? NPRnews.org, (laughs) 800-227-2811. You know, would you put a quarter in your radio or in your computer every time you turned on NPR News? That that doesn't sound like much. Maybe that adds up to about $90 a year. If, If that is an amount that seems reachable to you, especially right now with this $5,000 match that we have going on, a challenge, you can give us a phone call. This is something that, of course, is going to pay for programming like what you're listening to right now with big books and bold ideas. Really thoughtful, very interesting. Carrie Miller is incomparable talking to these authors. I know that that's why a lot of people listen on Fridays or just subscribe to the podcast, but also the news, right? You're here to hear about news. You're here to hear conversation about what's going on in our world. 25 cents a day? That doesn't sound like much at all. I mean, we spend more than that on coffee, right? It's like a tip. It's something that keeps it coming to you and to our community. And with a match, it's like it's double. You're giving 50 cents a day if you can do it. 1-800-227-2811 or nprnews.org. What Kelly and I are asking you to do is prioritize a contribution. I I mean, to... To really not say, I'll get to it at 3 o'clock. Oh, you know what? I love to see them kind of scrape over the finish line at the very end. (laughs) We are asking you uh, to contribute now because you're going to help us make this $5,000 from the NPR Board of Trustees, but also to be sure that the opportunity doesn't slip away. If you love to read, if you've raised your kids to be big readers, if if you go to bed at night with a book and that's about the best thing you can imagine, if you share books among your friends, if you're in a book club, you know, these hours are for you. And my, my request is going right to you to support it with a contribution. If you're going to show up at Talking Volumes for Celeste Ng, and Danny Shapiro and Ross Gay, you are helping to make those events possible. So make a contribution. NPRnews.org, 800-227-2811. Kelly, what was that number again uh, uh, that we have left to go? We have $203,000, just a little bit over that. We still have seven hours to go. And of course, right now, because we have the $5,000 match, anything that you give is automatically doubled by the Board of Trustees once we make that match, which started at 1130. It goes, I think, up at least half an hour. Um, We'll Mm -hmm. see how quickly we can match it. I'm going to guess we can match it here in the next few minutes. 1-800-227-2811 or nprnews.org, which really, it takes so little time to do this. So like you said, Carrie, we don't want to delay. My name is Christina from Eden Prairie, and I'm a sustaining member of Minnesota Public Radio News. I listen all day long, waking up with Kathy Werzer, making dinner with Tom Cran, and ending the day with As It Happens. It feels good to support something that makes the world a better place. You should join me and become a sustaining member today at npr.org or call 800-227-2811. For our last American History Portrait episode of Big Books and Bold Ideas, the incomparable Ron Chernow. He's the author of many biographies, but he's probably best known for writing the book about Alexander Hamilton that became the heart of Lin-Manuel Miranda's musical. Here's Chernow at Talking Volumes in 2017 describing why he does his own historical research and how that led to Miranda's hit musical. I do it all myself, and I do it myself because I find that Um, What I discover in reading a letter or a diary, um, what I discover is exactly proportionate to my knowledge of the people and the events of the period. That is, historical discoveries do not announce themselves. Uh, And I could give one example. When I was doing uh, Hamilton, Hamilton grows up. He's this illegitimate orphan kid. You know, uh, he's working as a poor clerk on St. Croix, 17, he then goes to the mainland, and five years later, he's working um, as George Washington's right-hand man. So I thought to myself, gee, everyone on the island of St. Croix must have been buzzing. Remember that kid, Alex? 
poor cleric, and now he's Washington's right-hand man. So I spent an entire day cranking microfilm in St. Croix. There was a, an island newspaper. I cranked microfilm, and I went through every page of every issue during the eight years of the Revolutionary War, just looking for Hamilton's name. There was not a single reference. But I would get tired, so I would stop, and I would start reading. And I started reading, and I noticed that there were these um, articles signed a gentleman from New York. And in one of them, the writer was describing an episode that happened in Lower Manhattan in 1775 in almost verbatim the language that Hamilton had described the same event in a letter to John Jay. And I said, oh my God, the gentleman from New York is Hamilton. Uh, And then I found that there were ten letters, and they all perfectly matched up with letters that he'd written, things happening in his life. So there was no doubt in my mind that Hamilton was the gentleman from New York. Then actually in the final one of them, he said, I'm putting down my pen, you know, and taking up arms, which was exactly the week that Hamilton became a captain uh, in the the army. But I said to myself that if I'd, you know, hired someone to go in and do that— even the most conscientious researcher would have called me up at the end of the day and said, Ron, I'm sorry, I didn't find any re- reference to uh, Hamilton. You know, and it would have been uh, drilling a, 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 a dry hole. And so I end up doing it all, all myself. Nice. So you've brought us all tickets for Hamilton on uh, Broadway, right? Um, okay, tell the story about how Lin-Manuel Miranda approaches you to write this great hip-hop musical out of right. a that, that you never saw coming when you published Hamilton. Oh, no, okay. I always happen? knew there was going to be a hip-hop musical. <laughs> <laughs> you did not. <laughs> no, I published the book 2004, and then 2008, I, I live in New York. I was out walking in my neighborhood of uh, Brooklyn Heights, and I ran into my friend Gara, whose daughter had gone to Wesleyan with Lin-Manuel, and uh, it was this life-changing conversation because he said, you know, there's this hip-hop artist, Lin-Manuel Miranda, and he's read your Hamilton book and he's become obsessed and he wants to meet you. And Lin was still starring in his first show called In the Heights uh, on Broadway and he invited me to uh, a matinee and I went backstage. Luckily, I loved the show and I was very charmed by him. And so I went backstage and I said, so I gather my book made an impression on you. And he said... Ron, I was reading the book on vacation in uh, Mexico. He said, as I was reading it, hip-hop songs started rising off the page. And I said to him, really? (laughs) Uh, And then, and Lynn has this very sort of earnest style of talking. He said, said, you know, Ron, Hamilton's life is a classic hip-hop narrative. And I'm thinking to myself, pal, I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) None whatsoever. And then, uh, to my amazement, uh, you know, he asked me to be on the spot, the historical advisor to this uh, non-existent uh, show. <laughs> you know, so I laughed and I said to him, you mean you want me to tell you when something's wrong? And he said, yes. <laughs> said, he said, I want the historians to take this uh, uh, seriously. But I could see, you know, if, if he had wanted to do a, a kind of a satirical or outrageous treatment of Hamilton, I would not have been interested. But I could see that he shared exactly my fascination uh, with the um, uh, with the character, but I said to him, I mean, I think Lynn quickly realized he had this sort of world class ignoramus about hip hop on his hands, and so um, I said to him, "Can hip hop be the vehicle for telling this kind of complex story?" And he said, "Ron, I'm going to educate you in hip hop." And he started to on the spot, and he pointed out a number of things that are still very pertinent to the show. Started pointing out that hip hop, there are more words per measure than any other musical form, so you can pack an enormous amount of information into a small space. Um, started pointing out that there's uh, a lot of uh, rhyme. There's rhymed endings. There's internal rhyme. There's a lot of you know wordplay. So he began to get me very, very um, uh, interested in the uh, in, in the form. But of course, I had thought when the book came out, I thought it would probably be a feature film or a TV series. Then I started working with uh, Lynn, and um, I mean, I was very intrigued. I thought, isn't this fun? I'm going to be part of a show. But uh, you know, I never dreamt, and Lynn never dreamt that it was going to be a blockbuster I know. You know, on this uh, scale. And the whole Hamilton phenomenon not only continues, it just keeps expanding. And somehow I find myself at the, in the middle of it. it, it um, is it true that he came over to your apartment the first, with the first uh, yeah. song? 
Yeah, yeah what like, happened? Well, he came up to my apartment, um, and he sat on my living room couch, and he started snapping his fingers, and this is what he sang. How does a bastard, orphan, son of a whore, and a Scotsman dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean by providence impoverished in squalor grow up to be a hero and a scholar? The ten-dollar founding father without a father got a lot farther by working a lot harder, by being a lot smarter, by being a self-starter. By 14, they placed him in charge of a trading charter. And every day while slaves were being slaughtered and carted away across the waves, he struggled and kept his guard up. Inside, he was longing for something to be a part of. The brother was ready to beg, steal, borrow, and barter. Anyway, it goes on like that. No, keep on going. Oh, my God. That was great. I've told, I've told, I've told them many, many times that I'm ready to go <laughs> on stage. I think Glenn feels I should be doing bar mitzvahs and weddings. You know, not, not that. But anyway, you know, he, he, he finished uh, singing the song, which is a, a four-minute song, and uh, he said to me, what do you think? And I said, Lynn, I think that's the most extraordinary thing I've ever heard in my life. You've taken the first 40 pages <laughs> of my book and you've kind of shrink-wrapped them into this, you know, four-minute uh, uh, song and, and frankly, you know what I was thinking, but I did not say this to Lynn. I was thinking, buddy, either you write very tight or I write very long. You know, it was a little bit, it was a little bit embarrassing that he had, t- you know, accurately condensed forty pages of writing into this four-minute song. So it was just work, great working with the. Uh, we had a wonderful uh, working relationship, and he was always very. I was always touched how uh, faithful. He was to the book. And it's not that there's a lot of dramatic license in the the show. Um, But Lynn always started out from the presumption that the most dramatic way to tell the story was to stick as closely to the story as possible. And I think that we both felt that this was a story that was so unbelievable that there was no improving uh, on it. But, uh, you know, what happens is, I mean, there are changes because you're doing a show... You have to have eight or ten principal characters. Everything has to happen by them, to them, through them. You know, in my book, I have hundreds of characters. So that inevitably, you know, there are uh, uh, changes that are, are made. But I was really struck by how much good, accurate history made its way into the uh, final version. <laughs> the humble and incredible Ron Chernow there with our third portrait of American history. Kelly, I just it makes me laugh. It makes me oh, yeah. happy to hear that music from Hamilton. It's so good. And I bet and nobody turned the radio on today and said, I, I can't wait to hear Ron Chernow rap the intro song to Hamilton. <laughs> I know that just wasn't wasn't on the itinerary when you uh, turned on the radio today. It's uh, it, it is the last day of the fall member drive. We had a treat for you, Kelly, and I worked on that together. We brought you three portraits of American history with three different historians who took uh, different places in American history, but brought those times alive with their storytelling and their writing. That's the kind of programming I hope that matters to you, that enriches your life, that maybe, I don't know, you'll share tonight over a Friday evening dinner with a loved one. We are asking now, as we move to the finish line, uh, for you to kind of assess how often do I listen? What do I get from this? Gee, I love American history, and I heard these three great interviews, and to step up and make a contribution to Minnesota Public Radio, nprnews.org, 800-227-2811. Kel, I know you've got your eye on the uh, ever-diminishing mm-hmm. uh, goal, and what does it look like right now? This is kind of, I feel like we need a little sound effect, you know, like a whoop really? whoop, because we're under $200,000. Okay. $200, ah, fantastic. So really, very doable. it's very doable. We are doing it. I feel like this is really exciting. Seven hours left. We did hit that $5,000 speed match that we talked about in our last break. So now we're just moving on toward the big goal, 198,000. Right now I'm watching the number drop, Carrie Miller. This is an exciting thing. This is a chance for people to join us here in the final countdown, the last day of member drive for the fall. 
All you have to do is go online, nprnews.org. You can give us a phone call at 1-800-227-2811. It takes a few minutes. You can join the team and make sure that this kind of programming continues into the future for yourself and for other people that you love in this region. Are you someone whose happy place is a bookstore, an independent bookstore, or a library? Are you someone who could never just be more fulfilled than cuddling up on a on a weekend evening with a glass of wine and a great book? Hey, this show that Kelly and I do every week is for you. Big books and bold ideas. Talking volumes is for you. All the, the thread newsletter is for you. And every now and then we ask, hey, book lovers out there in the audience, this would be a great opportunity to step up and say, this kind of programming really matters to me. I don't get this kind of book coverage in very many other places. This is a chance to validate the the kind of reading and book coverage that we do at Minnesota Public Radio. And best of all, to help us make this goal for the fall member drive, 800-227-2811. If you're hanging out online, maybe you're, I don't know, maybe you're flipping between you know, NPR News, the live feed, and you're listening also to a podcast about books. I don't know. You might be. It takes you a couple minutes just to flip on over and make a contribution at nprnews.org. Kelly and I would really appreciate it. Membership would really appreciate it. Thank you for making a contribution to what you what you listen to and what you value. I think about how many times people who listen to Big Books and Bold Ideas or other programming on NPR News must say to their friends and family, hey, I heard this thing mm. on NPR yeah. News. You know, like if you had to give a dollar every time you said to somebody, did you hear that story? Did you hear that interview with the author? Did you hear Ron Cherno rapping this morning on NPR? It's those little moments that we bring to you and they are valuable. And here it is, the last day of Member Drive. We just dropped Carrie to under 198000 It's a little bit Fantastic. more than 197 now. $1,000 left to be raised in seven hours. And we can do it with your help because you are on our team. You are listening. This matters to you. NPRnews.org or 1-800-227-2811. Yeah, the, the big number is ours to worry about. The small number is yours to worry about. Mm-hmm. If you listen to Minnesota Public Radio and you're here, aren't you? Maybe you come back on a on any given Friday and you pop in and you listen to a bit of these interviews with authors. Maybe you come to Talking Volumes. Maybe you you wake up with Kathy Werzer in the morning. You know how you listen and engage with Minnesota Public Radio. And we'd love to hear from you on the final countdown. Mm-hmm. 800-227-2811. Online, mprnews.org.